There's all these things, what I call the program side, which is why I'd classify me in that keys category, because you don't think about that when you're playing acoustic piano. You just play, which is like what I think the, the main fundamental difference is. You can always tell a piano player when they turn up with a keyboard and don't utilize any of it, <laughs> you just play it. In some degree, I love that. Yeah. But when you're on a pop project where the sounds are so versatile and different and changing all the time, you can't, you can't approach it like that anymore. Hello, welcome back to the Keys Coach podcast. My name's Adam, and if you're joining us for the first time, I'm a keys player and a songwriter, and this is the podcast where I sit down with other piano keys and synth players and talk about their life in music. Today we're chatting with Andy Yates. He plays with Canlam Scott, Sam Fisher, James T.W. That is just the tip of the iceberg. He's played with so many different artists. In this conversation, we chat about how Andy got started on the piano, how he approaches learning songs. A lot of Andy's work now involves playing solo. And we do a bit of a deep dive into how Andy thinks of the piano like an orchestra. And he gives some really amazing strategies of how you can create gear changes when playing solo. We chat about the role of a musical director. And we also hear what life is like on tour. Andy's just got back from a world tour with Callum Scott and we hear all about that. It's a super wide ranging conversation with so many insights into the industry and tips for how you can take your keys playing to the next level. Talking of which, before we dive in, if you're looking to develop your keys playing, do sign up to the Keys Coach waitlist. I've got so many plans for the future, the podcast really is just the first step of this journey. So do go ahead and sign up and you'll be the first to know when new content is released. I've put a link in the description. Also, if you have any guest suggestions, you can get in touch via email, adam at thekeyscoach.com, or you can message me on Instagram at thekeyscoach. Talking of guests, we do have so many exciting guests coming up for you. So remember to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's dive into it. Here is the conversation I had with the amazing Andy Yates. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's really great to see you. Thanks so much for doing this. I hugely appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I was. I immediately thought of you when I started doing this podcast because we met, I think it was maybe like, I got it probably about two years ago now. It's for that charity uh, with Seed Foundation. You were playing with Callum, Callum Scott, that is. And um, mm -hmm. I was like, oh man, I've got to get this guy on to, uh, got to get this guy <laughs> on to chat. Um, so I, I guess like a really cool place because I, I actually I remember when we were chatting at that night you you told me yeah. that you didn't necessarily start on piano um no. so it might just be cool to hear about how you got into music kind of in the first place and when the piano kind of came in for sure uh well I guess I, I grew up in a in a way my mom was very musical and you know she was a music teacher and she used to sing in choir and play the organ so right. I guess from a young age like she was very adamant that I, uh, I learned two instruments. So like I, I was left with the viola and the piano. Um, <laughs> and okay. at that time, um, both my brothers had taken the violin and cello. So I didn't have the option of the others. So I was like, okay. And um, I think just growing up, we just, we've just always put in the sort of regiment music lessons and I used to hate it, but I found myself excel on on the string instrument more than on piano initially just because i think i think it was something quite unique about the viola at the time and i just enjoyed it mm. and I was, and i was like growing up in orchestras and i did saturday music school and it wasn't until i got to about 13 and i was i just never really rated my piano playing because i was the sort of person that just excelled on on viola and didn't really think i was any good because everyone around me was so much better 
like <laughs> okay it's just still like oh but uh it was actually when i got the opportunity to play in some church settings that just allowed me to just play my instrument in a more creative way rather than in a classical way so i was so used to playing viola in orchestra and in concerts and in right. competitions which put this real high pressure so i thought i could never do that on the piano but given an opportunity to perform in a church context meant that i was regularly playing piano on a sunday and in front of you know sizable amount of people each week you know 600 plus and it just from a young age i guess from 13 i was doing that so it gave me this sort of um performance application to the instrument which piano doesn't normally get so like with with string instruments it's like you're you know there's orchestras there's like lots of clubs and stuff that's that that's really easy for you to join and get good at Mm -hmm. and to play with other people whereas on the piano there's not really any ensemble context you can sign up for at such a young age or join in on unless you know that obviously now they've got all the rock school grades and things like that which i didn't have when i was growing up it was all abrsm it was all that sort of stuff so i think for me it was just given like a performance opportunity that was other than school and lessons and like competitions that made me realize oh i've got this creative side to the piano that i'm I'm good at doing that that was basically it brilliant that's so interesting it's it's kind of a minute ago you said that you hated a lot of those lessons <laughs> yeah and what is so funny is that you know i've spoken to loads of people on these interviews and so many people that are now like pursuing music professionally and are at the top of their game and are professional yeah. performers like yourself all said they hated music <laughs> lessons and learning while they were growing up and there's that's so weird isn't it <laughs> normally if yeah. you hate something you just don't do it again you know but i kind of um why why did you not enjoy those music lessons what was it about it that just didn't inspire you I think it's a maturity thing, maybe initially, and just because I had older brothers, I think just you kind of compare yourself, don't you? And and I think I I, I just distinctly remember just like begrudging, like just not wanting to waste time doing a lesson because you don't see the the fruit of it when you're younger. So you don't see the. It was only till I was about fifteen, which I then turned to my mum and said, "Thank you for doing that for me," because as soon as I got to enjoy playing the way that I did. I was like, oh, that's all come from all the technique and scales and all the stuff I hated. Right. I think it's just, you just have to learn to mature into it rather than sort of like, I just really resented it. And I think some people, my teacher was actually really patient with me because she was actually, she wasn't really strict. She was actually quite a nice teacher and I really value her actually. Uh, it was just that I think my my attitude at the time was like really reluctant to learning a piano instrument. It was more geared towards wanting to do like, football or tennis or okay. I don't know, play video games and stuff like that so for me it was the other distractions of what my mm. other friends were doing because yeah. I distinctly remember my mom leaving me like you know at the time I had like a couple of 20 pound notes and I remember not going to my lessons for a few weeks and I bought um I remember when I bought like a video game from it that I right. saved with stash of money and then my teacher gave my mom a call and said why hasn't Andy been coming to these lessons I got in big trouble. I think, yeah, I think it's just a mature thing. That's really interesting. I think, yeah, (laughs) I think people have said similar thing. They've come back to it later on, you know, and they've they've enjoyed it more. And I think that's a thing that, a thing that happens. So presumably in those piano lessons you were having, whether you kind of enjoyed them or not, you were mainly reading the sheet music. 
exactly I, it was very I, I had very traditional lessons so just it was learning class, classical music learning the abrsm syllabus i guess which is the kind of grade system in this country we yeah, have. yeah. It's a bit yeah. of sight reading a bit of this and a bit of that for sure so and that's kind of i guess in a, in some ways quite strange because i imagine that nowadays you perhaps don't use so many of those skills those reading skills or perhaps you do i don't know um i think depending on obviously what line of work you do being in the pop industry you're hardly ever given any proper dots or lines of music to read so definitely and that's where the kind of stuff playing at church came from because all of that was just you were just given chords you weren't given like lined music or anything like that whereas from my from what i've received from my lessons i wouldn't have had i wouldn't have a clue what to do because we didn't do much oral training in terms of learning or how to work out this this passage or this run let alone improvise and extemporize in a, in a contemporary way that fits pop music you know I could do that in a classical style or baroque style or something that was um you know a bit more traditional so it is it is actually interesting when i look back at my lessons going if i if i only had the experience of my teacher i don't know if i'd be i, I definitely wouldn't be the player that i am today so when did all of that other stuff come in for you then? When did you learn all that? Because there must have been a transition where you started going, right, I'm now going to learn how to improvise. I'm now going to learn how yeah. to really voice chords really nicely. When did you learn that stuff? And how did you learn that stuff? Yeah, actually, I think the change for me was actually probably more when I was 18, where I really delved into it a bit more, Okay, going to uni and stuff. I think before that, I was quite fortunate because I said I was surrounded by loads of great players so at church when i got to play i know it was mainly it was contemporary music so it was in a pop idiom it wasn't like sort of church like choral music or anything yeah but learning in that context meant i was around other musicians who had been doing that thing for ages so i think it's like if you're a bit of a sponge and you just take in the people around you who play a certain way and how they voice chords and i think i just was always fascinated with how someone would play something and i'd be like what did they do because that's not that's not like the G major that I know or like a different thing. And it's like, you just listen to some and some players that just done it since birth, just brought up in the church vibe would be bringing out all these voicings and chords. And I just think I'm never going to be able to play like that. Because <laughs> you just hear, you hear the extensions that they're adding. You can like theorize it and you go, what on earth is that? Yeah. hundred percent. So for me, I think it was just resigning to the fact that I'm not going to be like that. And just learning to listen and adapt in that environment. And then it, it, that's what then crafted what, how I play. So okay. it, a mixture of the two. And I, I still would define that to this day. Like when people earmark my play in, it's always a combination of my classical roots with the, the church sort of upbringing that I had. So I think it's a fusion of the two that kind of really spills out in my playing. Do you still play any classical music now or has that kind of stopped for you? Uh, I do actually. I I've tried. I've recently just got back into just trying to sight read again because, like what you were saying, in the line of work that I've been doing, it's it's completely not. You know, I don't really do it anymore. So um, when I first finished uni, I I sight read I sight read all the time, and I did accompanying for people's exams and stuff like that. Uh, so I kind of missed it a little bit, and so I thought I need to get back into practice really because I it, it was like relearning again for me. Yeah. So recently, I've literally just started trying to make a bit of time just to do it in my free time. But because I've been on a world tour, it's been hard to <laughs> sit down and do that. So I've just tried to just set myself a little bit of a practice regime and just get back into just, I just don't want to become stale. So I've just, I've just tried to set a reminder each day just to do like half an hour sight reading. Right. And, and just out of interest, why, why do you want to get your sight reading better? I think for me, it's just, 
I, I still feel like it's a useful skill and I feel bad that I've let it down because right. there is there's always going to be environment like because I've kind of moved into writing and producing there's always an environment where you could you might need someone might give you something to read and go I've worked on this idea can you play it and it's it's I just feel like it's a skill set that's useful it's like you'd rather have it than not and I felt like I got a bit lazy with my playing so I just thought I need to do something that's cool. What what sort of stuff are you sight reading? Um, so I, I actually, because my mum is, um, I said she she's a fantastic pianist, and she she's she's one of those people that can just literally read absolutely anything. And I feel like she's never lost that skill. She's just can, so she. I would always actually ask her for some recommendations for me. Okay. So she would give me some Bach preludes or some 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 Debussy or stuff that I like. And she says, try to get your teeth into this. Or she'll say, you know, something a bit easier. Try this Greek piano thing. And and I thought, oh, that is a lot easier for me. So I'm going to do that first. <laughs> so it's just like cho- choosing something that's a little bit within your reach where you can. So for me, I'm such a perfectionist. So I, it's hard to like not learn the piece and perform it. Mm. So it's just, I'm just getting myself in a mindset to uh, just to learn to sight reading try not to like craft it how i normally would and just see it as an exercise to just push my brain because i just yeah it's hard to let it go and like not play something well or like that's that's my problem i'll get on the first four bars i'm like that's not right so (laughs) yeah you want you sort of can feel a bit out of shape can't you a bit sometimes it can slow you down i 100 i get that certainly do um so you you mentioned that you like studied at uni and then you kind of began working as yeah. a professional musician after uni. So what did that kind of look like in those initial days? What things were you doing and what kind of music were you playing? Oh, I I really it's just such a, I really love I was telling someone what I started doing and it made me laugh to what I do now. But I at that time I think teaching was always quite a stable way of earning money for any musician I think. So I took on some private students that i would just impart what i learned through uni and through improvising a little bit and stuff um so that gave me a form of income and then i was just like well what do i do so i started off i actually went to um the high road of where i was living in finchley and found i went to some restaurants that didn't have any music and said do you need a keyboard player to play some music because there's not a lot of it and that was my first gig that i got was playing in this turkish restaurant three times a week okay nice so I, so I did and they just wanted background music and i so i, I basically just did piano lessons i was playing at this turkish restaurant three times a week for like 50 quid and a, and a kebab <laughs> yeah i suppose there's worse things there there are worse things there was, aren't there, there was worse. it wasn't the most prestigious thing to start doing, yeah yeah but, yeah um I guess actually alongside that, I was playing with a lot of like, I guess people call them like original artists or unsigned artists that are just starting out mm. and the fee wasn't so good. Yeah. So there were a lot of there were a lot of bands that I was playing in that were like on the cusp of becoming something, right, which okay. meant that you got to play in the circuit venues in London, like yeah. you no, know, like Barfly and like all those kind of members clubs or the kind of s- small kind of two, three hundred cat venues that had a kind of reputation just get experience performing and and knowing what it's like and getting used to standing up on a stage and doing your thing which is obviously what you do a huge amount of now so you've obviously obviously put in that time at what point did you start transitioning into kind of more developed artists because for everyone who's listening Andy's worked with so many different artists Callum Scott Sam Fisher James T.W loads of these different people and um, it'll be great to hear how those emerged I mean I think you're probably 
best known for your work with Callum, perhaps. Sure. Um, and that's uh, that seems to be a lot of a lot of what you do now. And you've transitioned to being his musical director and his produ- and all these kind of different things. So, wh- how did that relationship start? Um, well, it's funny actually because I, I think that that started for a, a contact that I met um, when I was supporting another artist. I was I was looking after this artist called Call Me Loop, who's a kind of pop, pop singer. And we were supporting Jonas Blue, and Jonas Blue was doing like a live show, mm-hmm. a, a, like a Europe tour. So we were supporting that little run, and I got to just meet like the drummer of that that band who was playing for Callum at the time. Right. So all it was was just he got to see me play in the context that I was doing, and we got on pretty well. And then he he basically called me up literally a couple of weeks later saying. Would you would you like to be a part of this Callum project? Now at the time, uh, Callum would obviously just started out. He'd only just been doing stuff for like about a year. Maybe he just went around America doing just dance on my own, which was the the song uh, that he's you know famous from from the talent show. And um, so it was really early stages of of the project. Um, that current keyboard player moved on to do um, Sam Smith, or I was, I think, was already tied in with that. So he had to leave what he was doing, and that's how I came in. So it was quite an amicable change. It wasn't like no one got fired or anything. So yeah. it was, it was kind of nice to come into a position where it was just kind of they needed someone, and um, and that's how I, that's how I got it. It's funny, isn't it, how some of these sort of massive kind of things happen through just one meeting with someone at a gig or one little connection um it can obviously just be like one chance meeting can't it it's kind of it's interesting how the music world tends to operate like that exactly yeah so obviously when you start playing with a new artist like Callum or all these other yeah. people you've worked with you have a huge amount of material to learn and this is something I've been asking all the keys players and piano players I've been working with how yeah. do you go about learning all those songs what's your process for that because that's obviously a huge amount of information to take on um, yeah. it's a lot of stuff to learn. How do you begin learning a set? I like to immerse myself in the rehearsal recordings or the, or the material provided. So I would often just in my free time, just listen and listen and listen. And I wouldn't do any playing. Right. I, I, I literally see myself. I used that word sponge before, but I like to really absorb what I'm about to learn so that when it comes to me working out the nitty gritty bit by charting out like chords or structure, before that even happens, I know I know what's going on, and I feel it, and I and I I've got an understanding of the emotion behind it because an artist like Callum is, is quite a, really, well really for a pianist it's it's one of the best ones to go for really because he's such an emotional singer and it's very piano led music, mm. and it requires someone to interpret that in a way that kind of fits my playing really, which is why it's been met, you know a good match. But it it you kind of need to have a really good technique to be able to play the way that the record's been produced and recorded and you also need to have a good emotional and you know good being really good at improvising and following a singer going off key or off off tempo or you know it's just it requires a bit of bit more than just you know if someone just gave me the dots and you have to read that it's it's, yeah it's beyond the page really um so my process is to just listen and then i basically just when I learn it out, I always do a chart. So I'll do like a little real book type chart where I just put chords in and I put the structure of like the verse and the chorus. So I have like that app, you know, that I didn't use that at the time. I used to use paper, but I've transitioned to digital now. So I've got a little app with all the charts. And I find that once I've charted something once, I just always remember it. So my how my brain works is 
is that I, if I've sponged it in musically, all I need to do then is write down the chords once, and then I'm pretty good at, at just playing it. Okay. So, um, so now because I've done that over years and years, I never need the music in front of me. But the first time I did, Callum, I remember having that chart on my phone really sneakily because I, I didn't want to look to others. I thought I don't want them to see that I'm using a chart, so I had like a sneaky little cheat sheet of just like the chords and the structure. <laughs> which I'm pretty sure on recordings you can still see that I'm very much my eyes are very fixated on it. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure no one noticed. Yeah. <laughs> How do you find um working out those things by ear? Because I know a, one of the things a lot of piano players struggle with, particularly if they've right. maybe come from a more classical background where they're used right. to reading stuff off the page. How do you go about transcribing those chords? What's your process and, and is that something that's got better over time or is it something that you already quite nat already quite natural at? Yeah. Um well, it's definitely something that gets better over time. Mm. It's like sight reading. It's like you, it's literally the same thing. It's just learning to interpret music a different way. So rather than looking at a page, you're, you're interpreting it from your ears. So initially, when I started, I would be, just be happy with just literally inputting the bass notes. Yeah. And then the, the the voicings that I would be doing may not be exact. And I would kind of just blag it a bit, to be honest. Because I think when you start, you're no way you're going to play it exactly like whatever they've given to you and it depends if the project requires you to play exactly what's given or do they want you to do your stamp on it because sometimes they're going well if you play it exactly like how they're giving it to you it's too rigid or you're not as like mm. you know I've definitely had been told that before where i've been too static or you know too like oh it's too correct <laughs> okay so they want you to like put more of you into it basically yeah exactly so i think that that does very much depend on who's directing the project and who says you know can you just literally learn this as is or they just say can you just get the feel for it in which case it just me i always interpret that as okay make sure you're playing the right chords but the voicings of it is to interpretation as long as it doesn't distract the singer then you're all good. I think that is something that a lot of people struggle with is the is the is the working stuff out by year. But as you say, it just does come with time. And yeah. I think the key to it is starting off with the bass. If you can yeah. start, if you can hear the bass line, then the rest of it kind of works itself out after a while, you know. Sure. And then you also you start to and I think it's also if you want to get better at it, it's also having that sort of inquisitive mind and like hearing someone playing going, what are you watching them or just asking you can just ask them what how they're voicing it and how they're doing it because i think there were certain type of chords when you like i smudge a lot of the chords with my thumb you know and i make sort of like add twos or add threes and i and i kind of i really do kind of squash, squash a lot of notes in there and i think if someone was just listening to that they'd go what on earth is he doing yeah but when obviously when you hear it in context it it i, I feel it like really can thicken up the sound sometimes um and sometimes you just can't hear that because it's just you just wouldn't think you would be doing that so it's just uh it's just like having that sort of like yeah inquisitive mind and just asking those questions or i think sometimes if you if there's a particular piano phrase that you really like and you go i'd really like to play that just spending a bit of time uh just absorbing it and playing it over and over and just uh, pausing the music after each beat if, if that's what you have to do to try and get the exact spread i mean there's software a friend told me about a piece of software that i think it's like called transcribe and it and it, it's like it does the like it takes in the audio and you can slow it down so you can like really piece it but i mean i think i think if you need to be that exact software like that is is going to save you loads of time because i know that i've done that through trial and error and it's taken and 
and then I've I, I remember for ages like you know with like um sort of function music that you would learn mm. from and like you know if you're doing ain't nobody or you're doing the iconic sort of key- I remember for ages like there's always certain riffs that loads of keyboard players would be playing the wrong notes yeah 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 there are so many of those yeah ones. And you I, know the superstition riff is a key example superstition of that. yes yeah or um senorita I remember that yeah. that. I remember when I first started to learn that that Justin Timberlake one with the road sound and everything, it's just like the exact voicing of those chords was always something that was a bit <laughs> too interpretationist. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, you're so right. It's good. A lot of the stuff you do with Callum is obviously very exposed when you're performing now. So I'd like to talk about like, I guess there's kind of two sides to it, really. There's like the side where you're playing acoustic with just you and him, which I know is a huge mm-hmm. amount. And that's, that's actually where I saw you you performing with yeah, him yeah. and it was completely exposed and acoustic and that was amazing. And then you've also got the side with the band. So let's maybe just focus yeah. on the side when you're playing kind of acoustic. So obviously that's hugely exposed. Quite often mm-hmm. it's just you and him. How does that kind of work when you're playing more solo? Because quite often you're having to reduce down like a really produced track into its bare elements. So what's kind of your process for that? Right. So I always think of the piano as like an orchestra spread out. So I always think of it as like if if it, if I'm playing by myself, I've got this whole range that I've got at my disposal. I've got the low end, the mid and the treble. And there's also a bit of percussiveness you can add to the, the rhythm. So that's the, the rhythmic side you might bring to fill out the chords so rather than if the chords just a semi-breathe you know you can pulse it with a kind of like i don't know like a more complex rhythm to give it a bit of feel especially if the the, the, the tune requires a bit more movement so if the guitar is chugging away eights and but the piano part that you're listening to is just held chords you need to bring a little bit of mo- momentum to give it you know the sense of like oh this is an upbeat song um so i think it's it's just adapting to that because yeah, you're right. In a band context, it's very different. So when I'm on my own, I'm thinking, oh, I can play my bass notes really nicely. I can add. I need to add a bit of rhythm, and I need to add a bit of color sometimes. When it's if there's like a um, a moment where it's just piano, and he's just sort of taking a breather, or he wants me to play out a little bit. Even how I solo in that aspect, I try not to like go too nuts with it, and I, I incorporate more chordal movement or more low end movement that utilizes the instrument in its solo capacity because you've got this opportunity to play all these different ranges. So I, I think actually where I'm at my best is obviously I actually do think in a solo context because I'm quite adapted now. And it, it, again, this is a process that's taken time. I'm really comfortable filling in like parts and improvising. So I'm, I'm quite good at bringing in different rhythmic layers to build up a track or yeah. to build. And I guess my technique means that I, I've got a good ability to play like really well quietly and loud or gradually so yeah it's it's all i think that's where technique really does come into it because i think if you've learned growing up on a keyboard it's not that you don't have technique but if you're learning on a piano you you have you have way more um versatility in it when it comes to like your touch and how it responds in the instrument so i think that's where my young playing has come in because where, where i stand out sometimes because i think you learn to sort of really play in it uh, really soft or really gently or using your pedals well or yeah and just how you utilize the instrument i think one of the things i've, I've been watching a bunch of videos this week for because i knew i was doing this chat with you and i i think one mm. of the things you manage so well when you're playing solo is the gear changes 
because right. it wouldn't work if you just played the chorus exactly the same with exactly the same dynamics and exactly the same voicings each time the chorus happens it has to go up a gear each time and i think that's one of the things that piano players that are starting out can maybe struggle with they can get quite bored with how they're playing it so what yeah. kinds of things can you do if you want to get a, you want to go up a gear right so um i always think of things in performance um circles and i got this idea from david and kaya grant who are these vocal coaches because i actually i was their accompanist for a long time when they were doing lessons and working yeah all sorts i know them yeah famous people yeah and um and they they would always do this for the voice they'll say well for the first verse you're going to sing maybe like you know m mezzo piano or something and then for the first chorus you're going to go mf and then so dynamics was a key one so I, I always thought okay so what how do i want my performance circles to look like as a pianist and that I actually kind of took that idea from them, really. So I just thought I'd, I'd apply that technique, but to my piano playing. So I'd always, so there's a voicing that I, I always like to, I, I mean, I'm sorry about my theory, but it's like, I'd always choose like a one C or something where, right. so I'm using that, that third inversion of a chord. Hmm. And I often find that if I start there in, and in the middle of the piano, it gives it, it gives me a lot of space to then move up. And I often find in that position, my hand doesn't really have to move a lot. So, so you mean would, you mean like a C, if we're in C, like a C over G kind of chord? Yeah, that, that exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So let's say I've got that shape. And I find that shape a really good starting shape for the verses and, and developing your playing because I find just transitioning between the different chords from that shape really easy. Mm-hmm. So I'd always, I would, you know, if you're, so if you're in C, and you're playing G, C, E in your right hand, to go to that G is a real simple change, isn't it? Yeah. Or to the A minor and to the F, you, you're hardly doing any movement. Mm. And I guess my my rule of thumb is, is not to make drastic movement in my hand so that you're not defining the chords too, too clearly so that the singer isn't off-put and the listener isn't off-put. Because you find if people are going to the, 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 the triad or the tonic each time, it, you're kind of moving the placement of where, where you are on the piano each time. Mm. That, it really distracts if you, if you listen to it i find it really distracting if someone's moving all the time and it doesn't sound very musical does it it doesn't sound it sounds quite rigid you know and i think if you can get those inversions really clearly and go through any sequence with inversions in your right hand then it immediately begins to sound more like music yeah exactly so i think for the verses i want to keep it really simple like quite simple and soft and so dyna- dynamically depending on the song I, I try and just bring it down a gear and then for the chorus i actually go up the octave with that inversion sometimes and double it so i'd I'd kind of double the g let's say in my right right hand and then keep that shape the same and then just kind of stretch out my left hand a bit more to stretch more than like the octave i might do an octave and a third on top or something like and just bring bring a bit more depth to it um that way so it's just it's just i just look at each section and go what what can i do with my hands or, or with the chord knowledge that i have to make it just jump up a bit more without necessarily having to play much harder so you know if i want to stay a similar dynamic i'll voice the piano up a bit more just to cut through a bit more and if if i can use my dynamics a bit more and go a bit and dig in i'll dig in with my left hand more for the chorus to define it more so that i think that's where i kind of i use a bit sometimes it gets told off having a bit of a heavy left hand sometimes (laughs) but i think actually it's really nice to to bring that that warmth especially when you're on your own to bring those nice big bass notes that really help define the chords and movement and then i think i, I like to just use quite like a syncopated rhythm especially if it's a song like i, I think on the the concert that you heard me at which i did with callum I, we did that uh i think we did rhythm inside or one of those mm. type of songs that he's got and that's very like guitar 
led rhythmically so i just thought well how can i replicate that in my right hand and it was just coming up with a bit of a syncopated rhythm that was a bit interesting that made meant that the movement of the song wasn't just me playing simple chords of course yeah and i know you also play guitar as well i've seen some videos yeah, of you playing do, yeah. guitar as well and that's really interesting because i think piano players and guitar players think completely differently about chords and about <laughs> harmony and what they play and i just wonder like Number one, how did the guitar thing start? And number two, how has it influenced your piano playing? Oh, interesting. Um, the guitar thing started just because, again, in the church circles that I was in, there was always a need for guitar to be there. Yeah. And I just, I just learned, I did really learn that instrument completely by ear. I never had a lesson in my life. Right. But what I did is I watched, I was around a lot of great guitarists and I watched them play like a hawk all the time. So I just found that, again, I just, took in what I was seeing and listening and just, and I, I remember working out some complicated tune that I could never play properly that helped me learn a bit more about the notes and stuff like that. Um, but interestingly enough, that's actually why sometimes like even with our guitarist and our band that I'm sometimes asked to play the acoustic for Callum just because he prefers how I voice in the chords. Right. Cause I, I do approach it a bit like a keys player. Because how I like to use different tunings or different shapes to kind of resemble what I would do with my left hand. Because you know, like when you when I like in, in the left hand particularly, if I'm in C or in a key, key that's easy to reach, like I do really like utilizing that that big stretch, that big that big tenth, you know. Yeah. Like, and, and I use that a lot actually because it, it brings it frees up my right hand completely. I can play the whole spreading of the voicing in, in my left hand. And then I can, and it frees me up. So even you can do the same on guitar, but you have to kind of tune the guitar a bit differently and use it a certain way. And that's kind of how I like to play. Man, that's so cool. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. I'm trying to get a bit. I mean, I do play guitar, but I've I'm realizing after, particularly after doing a few of these conversations, actually, just yeah. how guitarists think about harmony in in quite a different way, and yeah. things like having notes ringing over chords. I've spoken to loads of people about this. Right. Guitarists, when they play a chord sequence, will have one note at the top that will ring through the whole chord sequence. Yes. And that's like a kind of really like a horizontal way of thinking. And it makes all the chords glue together a little bit yeah. more. And sometimes yeah. when you're learning piano, you can just be encouraged to have these sort of like <laughs> really rigid kind of shifts between chords. And I think the more you can right. find something that works over all of the chords, the more again it begins to sound like music. Exactly. I mean, that's what kind of what I was. Um saying when i was talking about the inversion i like to start with yeah. on piano is because that that's a way in which you can like blend all the chords together and you are right you kind of find a shape on guitar and you can use that shape all over the chords and you're kind of doing different types of inversions of each one and that's essentially what i do when i find my piano shape i, I keep that shape and you can i mean if you wanted to you could keep that c over g shape mm. and you change the bass and it would still all make sense that that is something that i think is influenced from guitaring and what I was used to listening to because it definitely influenced the way in which I approached playing the piano. I think the, the the learning of other instruments and the and how you're brought up really influences the way in which you learn music orally and how you interpret it. Hundred percent. I think sometimes guitarists play the key and piano plays the chords. It's kind of that. It's that <laughs> yeah, kind of thing, exactly, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of weird when you when you think about it like that. So obviously you do all the stuff where you're you're acoustic and it's 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 just you and him. And I know you've now you're now uh, Callum's MD, which means you're his yeah. musical director. So I think for yeah. everyone listening, it'd be great. Could you explain what the role of a musical director is? Sure. So I'm responsible for putting the band together, so choosing the appropriate players to fill the right roles. And I'm responsible for organizing the rehearsals and all the material that you send out in advance. So a lot, again, is just an admin related job. 
but then in the creative element it's it's coming up with the intros if you're going to do like nice transitions or medleys of songs um it you know i'm liaising with like the label sometimes who they will they'll say oh we want callum to do this type of performance and and callum would so I'll speak to my music director he, he will suggest what ways we could do that song in that way or if they want like a shortened version of a five minute song or if they want um and a lot of it now is digital so you know we're running um on our live show we'd like to have everything live but like everything sometimes you need to color it with some some more flavors from the record so we use we play to stems and a lot of it now is me going through a lot of like the the stems from the production yeah and organizing all of that to fit around what the band does um so that's been a whole sort of skill set that's been put into play where i've had to learn on the job sort of thing where you're you're learning sort of more producer type techniques to kind of eq stems or take out certain bits to fit what the guitarist is doing or what what i'm playing on the keys how did you find so that means that sometimes you're playing with a click track right so like, there'd be a yeah, metronome in your how did you find doing that was that quite an easy process for you or was that something you had to you found sort of slightly more challenging for me it was quite an easy process but i think when i landed the callum role i'd i already got used to playing to a click with previous projects right so um it was quite an easy thing for me at that time but i think i, I definitely know that when i started working to click it it definitely highlighted where i needed to practice yeah it's um it's a it's, it can be a challenging thing isn't it i think when you're practicing like people sometimes play kind of metronome kind of games don't they they put the metronome on so right. i think all those things kind of feed into it mm -hmm. i think the best thing when you're playing with a click is to try and get it in your subconscious so you're not it gets to a point where you're not you're not playing with a click you're the clicks playing with you if you see what i mean it's like the yeah. other way around yeah um, that's true no, i was saying especially if you want to add a bit of feel to it where it's not sounding too like with dance on my own in particular that i mean we hardly ever do that to click but when we do it I find it so difficult because so much of it is kind of lazy on the beat. And I remember my bands sort of almost giving me a bit of a, they're giving me a little bit of phrase, which I, which I always enjoy from time to time. And there was, cause we have this version that we do where it starts off just me and Callum and then the Tiesto remix, which is like the dance remix comes in okay. halfway through. And, but Callum was looking at me going like, why is it so fast? And I was like, it's cause we're doing it to click. <laughs> Okay. I think it's like it is the it is the that is the tempo of the song it's like can you slow it down i was like well yeah but it, we, we in the end we did program the track to accommodate a slower tempo and then shift up but yeah at the time i just played it to click but i just played it in a really lazy way right. so i was going against the click quite a lot and everyone was like has andy lost his mind but then it all made sense on the second i put it to speed towards the end and everyone was like how the heck did you do that and i said in reality i said that was a bit of luck but it worked yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely how did you learn all the programming side because that's obviously a um, huge part of playing keys as opposed to playing piano what do you by the way you because your, your yeah. instagram name is has got keys in the name right yeah and it's really it, one, one of the thing i'd love to ask you about actually just really quickly as, as an aside yeah, sure. is some people describe themselves as a keys player and some right. people describe themselves as a piano player right. and what is a keys player to you what does that mean why are you a keys player rather than a piano player i guess I would put myself in the keys category because the kind of playing that I do now is solely on a digital format. I'm not doing loads of like, I'm not playing in for orchestras or a concert pianist. I'm not playing 
And I guess loads of what I do is so orientated on programming. Right. So even if I'm playing predominantly piano, it doesn't mean I'm not putting a lot of thought or time into that piano sound. So, and actually I got the name because James T.W., who I was working with before, was like, you need a cooler handle than just like your surname. So he was like, you should, you should put keys in there. <laughs> and I was like, so he actually set it up for me and did it. And I just rolled with it. it okay, kind of nice. Fun. Yeah, yeah. And now it's kind of just... It's just that I, I remember I hated it. I hated it because I thought it sounds really arrogant. <laughs> but, yeah. but I just I just at the time I was just like, look, I'll go with it for now. And, and it's yeah. kind of funny. And everyone kind of, you know, I work with kind of, you know, loves just winding me up about it. So, oh, man, just, it's not it's, it, it, I wasn't actually necessarily asking it even from the point of your Instagram thing, because some people do think of themselves as more keys and some people think of that more piano. Some people sit so in funny, the middle. Yeah. It is really interesting, isn't it? Because but I, I guess yeah. it is that it's that you're using sounds it's that you're predominantly working in like more electronic settings. So how, how did you learn the whole uh, programming side of it? Well, I bought I remember when I bought full price, uh, my the Kronos, cool Kronos that came yeah. out. Yeah, I've noticed you use those on your gigs. Yeah, yeah, I, I love, fantastic. I love using those. And and actually, for me, that keyboard is so complicated. Right. That you need, you can't just wing, you can't just turn it on and just like go through it. You yeah. kind of, you have to really understand it to like layer it up. The reason why I got it is because I wanted an easy keyboard that I could layer multiple sounds, like nice pad sounds, nice ambience. And what I loved about using the Kronos was that it would have like an effects chain that you can, you can, which I learned on the job, you know, you could, you could do specific compression or reverb for each sound that you layered in, or you could have like a master one that it all went through. So it was like a nice rounded sound for everything that you did. Um, so getting a, a, I just heard about this keyboard and thought, oh, this, this, this is great. And it just took me ages to get, <laughs> to learn how to use it. Okay. But in that process, I learned how to like craft the sounds. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I worked with an MD called uh, Kojo Samuel. Yeah. Who was the first sort of major MD that I worked for just as a keys player. And he would say to me specific things like, oh, can you take like the 300 out of this? Or can you add point whatever of a millisecond onto the reverb? And he was really specific about the detail. And I was like, oh, I've never really, I, I, I see a lot of keyboard players that would turn up with the Nords and just play and as soon as they do that for me in an audition for a pop thing i'm like what are you doing because i'm thinking why have you not thought about how that piano sounds in the record and gone is it a compressed piano is it really reverbed is it really bright or is it is there any low ends into it or, or whatever it is it's like there's all these things that are the program what i call the program side which is why i'd classify me in that keys category because you don't think about that when you're playing acoustic piano you just play which is like what I think the di the main fundamental difference is because I think you can always tell a piano player when they turn up with a keyboard and don't utilize any of it, <laughs> you just play it. And I yeah. and I, in some degree I love that. Yeah. But when you're on a pop project where the sounds are so versatile and different and changing all the time, you can't you can't approach it like that anymore. You do have to be all over that stuff, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent, man. It's it's um it's like a whole nother thing in itself, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's the same way I think guitarists think as well. Get to bring it back to guitar, like the whole, you know, they're yeah. very much thinking about sounds as much as they're thinking about music. And I think sometimes when you're learning piano, you can sort of forget those things. You can get used to just sure. sitting down and playing. And I think that's the um that 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 that's sometimes the issue. Can I just ask you a little bit about life on the road? Um, I think yes. that can often seem very glamorous, and obviously, you've, I think you've just completed a world tour yeah. uh, with Callum, which must have been incredible. Yeah. So, 
I think a lot of these things, people obviously just go and see the gig and they see this amazing yeah. performance, this amazing show, which you've, you've, you've helped put together. But can you give people a bit of an insight into what a day on tour maybe looks like? What kinds of things are happening? Yes, I can. Um, with the Callum Project, I was so fortunate because everyone, I mean, being the MD, I get to choose who's on it for one. But everyone, it is a real family vibe. Everyone gets, generally does get on with each other really well. So I haven't experienced what I have experienced on other tours with this particular project. But as a rule, you know, it's a lot of traveling. You're going from one place to another. And if you're on a bus, you're on a little sleeper on a, on a double-decker bus type thing that has like a little kitchen or a little TV room. And on Instagram, it looks very cool. But in reality, <laughs> it's very cramped. And if you're someone that likes your space or doesn't like people imposing your personal space it's not it's not ideal yeah and um you can't easily just go to the toilet or you can't go to shower like when you wake up you know it depends on where you're stopping over and if you've got a room to do all that in so i think initially the from the glamour side i think yeah it's great when you're playing fifa for the first hour but then after that it's just adjust it's just being able to get on with the people that you're with because yeah. if you can't it's really unenjoyable if you if you can't if it's not if there's people there that you just don't get on with and it's really awkward and you're on your own, it could be really isolating and lonely. Because I think um, that, you know, you're doing an hour to an hour and a half set if you're a headliner or, you know, maybe two hours if you're like a major one. And the rest of the time, you're literally just, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're I'm, I'm on my phone a lot. <laughs> like my screen time's gone up by seven hours or yeah. something ridiculous because. I, I try and fill it with with um productive things but it's so difficult when you're like waiting around a lot because you always have i always find that you just got there's not really enough time for you to get your teeth into something because it's like pockets of time so it'll be like okay so we've got sound check in the middle of the afternoon so we're in this beautiful city but i can't really venture too far because i've got sound check at this time yeah so then it's like and then in the morning you kind of you know you if you're if you've got the luxury of having a day room at a hotel you know you want to take your time and enjoy the bed and the facilities yeah and you, you've got like these time you've always like you've got these time there's always something coming up yeah exactly so th there's a lot of dead time and and it can, that can be a killer if you're with if you can't enjoy For, fortunately you know we i bought like um this mobile projector with me and I put like my Bluetooth bit and we, I would set up like a little TV room where we could, we watch the series together or we did stuff like that to make it like a bit of community and a bit, have a bit of fun. But I think in, in, in all honesty, life on the road is, can be really difficult if you're not with good company or, um, and even if you are in good company, if it's for a long period of time being on a bus, if you're very kind of claustrophobic or you need your space, it's really hard because you just you can't um there's not really a lot of room to enjoy yourself of course yeah no i totally get that i, I think that the music's only half of it isn't it in some ways <laughs> yeah yeah for <laughs> yeah. sure it just comes it just again it's going into what a day is but i would actually just say as a rule for your personal life and your mental health what i don't think is talked enough about is the need to bring um the balance of various things when you're on the road because I think it's very easy to get caught up in the lifestyle. 
because it, it is it isn't it isn't a glamorous lifestyle because one moment you're doing thousand cat rooms you're sold out you've done this amazing show there's always like a lot of alcohol behind stage and there's always access to various other things if, if you wanted to go that way but i think it's just being level to yourself and not getting caught up in in that and, re- and recognizing what it is that you're doing it for because right. it's like it is like another I, I refer to it as like a <laughs> another reality to normal life like now that i finished tour this is normal life for me where i've got to balance seeing my kids go to the studio and then and then do the odd gig here and there that for me is what my life normally looks like when i'm on the road it's none of that i don't have to think of any of those things is that quite weird suddenly jumping between those two kind of worlds it is. Yeah, and it's and it's really hard to like keep your personal life in touch or to to adjust to those things because you're also used to a kind of high from performing on that. And I mean, definitely with the rate that Callum was performing, we we were performing so much, and you get used to this buzz of playing in front mm. of all these people and being respected and looked at in a way that's kind of like not that you're better than anyone, but you just you get like the feeling of like the performing side of it and being looked at and being appreciated for your art. And I think. But in when you're going into Tesco's, that's definitely not happening. <laughs> and, and when you're, you know, doing whatever it is, it's 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 just to keep yourself humble and, and not to get caught up with yourself. Cause I think, yeah. you know, I, I remember when I first started playing, I would dress really badly. <laughs> and it was only when the artist would say to me, Andy, you need to look a bit better on stage if you're gonna be alongside me. And I and I started like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll get this, I got some nice you know new fresh clothes or some jewelry or whatever it was and then it was almost like when I was starting going out my normal business I felt like I needed to dress up right. it is a hard yeah. adjustment because I was like even just going around the corner to the shop I was like I need to get the right matching shoes or the jacket and the, and this and, and you get caught up about how you look and and all these other things and I was like that's not really what my life was like before that yeah it's quite a long way from the music isn't it yeah do you get do you get nervous before you perform I, I I definitely do. Uh, not so much when it's a project that I've been on that, for a long time, where it's the same sort of show. You you do get nervous, but it's it it's very it doesn't affect my playing or anything. But the first time I've done like big, like the first time I did the O2 Arena or the first time I did like quite big, yeah, you know, shows, um, I was definitely very nervous, and that would be the difference between my practice or not because I would forget everything. So it was literally just autopilot. I think that can also be quite stressful as well, going going between being nervous to being sort of yeah. like buzzed and energetic and then yeah. having to do it all again the next night and going through that same process whilst yeah. being away from home. I think that can all be quite, um, can be quite turbulent, can't it? It can be quite difficult to manage. Very but yeah. um, I think that's just one of the things. I think that I think in the music industry now, people are becoming far more aware of those things. And like you say, talking about them and kind of I think so, there was a point in the music industry where all those things were kind of hushed away um, yeah and it was just all the glamour and the kind of all of that kind of stuff whereas I think now people are, are very much more aware of musicians mental health and all these kinds of things so it's right. only going yeah. in the right direction I think for sure so I noticed you recently did some arranging for strings as part of the projects yes. um and I'd love to know, obviously, you said earlier on that you used to play viola, which, by the way, if anyone yeah. doesn't know, is probably the most kind of niche of the string. <laughs> yeah. That's why I felt special when I played it. Yeah, yeah it's like, <laughs> so maybe part of that kind of played into how you learned how to do it. But how did you find that whole process arranging for strings and then subsequently playing piano alongside with your string arrangement? Um, 
well, to be honest, I loved it. I, I mean, I think part of it is working with a really good group of like people that know what they're doing with strings as well. So what I would, if I've got, if I haven't got a lot of time, I'd always delegate it to someone else to write the arrangement and then for me to then oversee it. So there's a lot of like that in being in a, in a director position because sometimes you haven't got the time to sit and write out all the dots and send it to the players. So, um, in a live context, what I would often do is either play like a MIDI string part and then send it to the string arranger to write out and send the dots to the appropriate people. Um, but because I've moved into production where I've needed to come up with a part myself, sometimes what I would do is tell a string arranger to write out a bare bones part, I call it, where it's literally just bar to a bow of just the chord movements. I then get them to record that in the studio I then get I then sing an idea to them or or write out an idea to them if they can't you know do it orally and and I guess that's where my training comes into handy yeah of course which means that they then play what I ask them on top of the bare bones that's been already written out for me so I haven't had to like do like the really tedious stuff and then I just do the more creative stuff so there was a record that I produced uh, boys in the streets and there's like this riff that I wanted it in octaves and I wanted it done in a certain way or slide into the note so I would I guess I'd be able to use um, and communicate to the string players the right way to get the right sound that I wanted being a string player myself. So just it helped with in terms of articulation and the vibrato or how, how you wanted it to sound. Yeah, you kind of had all that terminology all kind of ready yeah. to go because you knew that from when, when you were a string player. That's really good. And I've, I've checked them out. They sound so great. And particularly with the piano underneath, they they just come out so well. And they so suit Callum's. Um, voice yeah. as well on those arrangements yeah. you know they're absolutely fantastic well thank you so much for coming on it's been absolutely great chatting to you um i always kind of ask every guest kind of uh, a final question which is um what's next for you is there something you haven't done yet that you're thinking oh my god i'd love to do that is there an artist you'd love to work with what's next for you well for me is is i would love to get more into um writing and recording more um which is on the horizon actually um but that's i guess as a career it's like as a, as a keyboardist i'd like to expand my potential and how i earn and stuff and i'd like to have you know a more secure income rather than just relying on a day fee so that's yeah. why um moving it more into production writing for me is a bit of a goal yeah. so that i can have a, a bit more of a sustainable income and choose uh, between certain things that i'd like to do or not do Andy, it's been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people go and check out your music? Well, um, I guess my best is on my social social media from Instagram. So it's AYKeys and um, and just listening to like a lot of the live performances with Callum and the artists mentioned that's where you can hear me play. So that's the best platform. Amazing, mate. Cheers. Thanks so much for coming on. Right. Pleasure. Massive thanks to Andy for coming on the podcast. Do go and check out all those links in the description and do go and hear him play live. Thank you so much for listening. We've got so many exciting guests coming up for you. So do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you in the next episode.